0: And then the other thing is, you have to be interested. You have to find, whether it's the marketing lifecycle, whether it's the sales process, the, the technology that you're selling, you have to be interested in those pieces because it gives you the curiosity to go and ask the question of why.
1: Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Revenue Insights this week. And uh, this week, I'm joined by Nick Ellis, uh, who's the Chief Information Officer and Head of, Head of Revenue Operations at Envision. Nick, great to have you join us.
0: Thank you for the invite. It's uh, it's going to be an interesting first session of doing a podcast.
1: Yeah, and uh, I'm really interested to kind of dive in because you've got an unbelievable amount of experience. Obviously, at Envision at the moment, you've been there for, I think, just over a couple of years. And then before that, working at um uh, R four technologies and then c a technologies so huge amount of um uh experience in the tech world so um the thing that I kind of love and so you can kind of set the scene as you said, first podcast that you've done so um can you give us a bit of insight into um what your journey has been really through those companies, through your twenty plus years of experience to get to where you are today in what's quite an interesting role you know combining chief information officer and head of revenue operations?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I suppose over over time I've become a bit of a utility player. Um, you know, and it's, it's it's good and bad, right? So I, I started out in development. I've so been running professional services teams. I and and in my journey at CA CA Technologies, where I was there for for quite a while through many uh, transformations. Um, they provided me the opportunity to move horizontally across different groups. So product management, overseas, worked in Hong Kong for a couple of years, covering the Asian market in partners, running sales teams, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, as, as was the time when I, I ended up running, and I got promoted into, I should probably say, the global operations team, which was a combination of sort of sales sales and marketing. You know, and I've sort of condensed 20 years into a, sort of, a minute there. Um, each each of those roles was, you know, you, it, it gives you, what I would classify as context in terms of how businesses operate through a different lens, right? So when you're working for a software company, all they care about, salespeople, is effectively selling software, making sure it's successful, and then selling more software, right? When you're in the services part of the software organization, what you care about is after the salesperson has sold it, is making sure that it's running successfully so they can sell more software. And when you're in the product management team, what you care about is making sure the product is easy to implement, and that can be easily sold, so it drives the sales of your product. And when you're in partners, it's about how do you make a partner successful, selling your software so they can maximize and you can maximize the revenue margin on both sides. But having done those different roles, it, you, you have a firsthand understanding of the individual personal drivers of each of those organizations. It doesn't mean you have to be great at each of those roles, and, and there are some things I was better at than others, but it certainly gives you a um, it gives you a starting point when you get to the sort of global ops role of understanding the challenge of what it means to be in Hong Kong, and you're only getting and and your main your main office is in Long Island, right? That people in Long Island's perspective of what it means to be and working in sort of an Asian market with 13 countries with multiple time zones and different languages and everything else cultural sort of discrepancies or differences between all of them. That's a very different market to selling into the US or into Europe. So you know, you become much more sympathetic to working with these teams because you can look at it through at least, you know, you walked around in their shoes, you can look at it through their lens. And I I found that to be helpful.
1: Amazing. And that obviously brings you now through to where you are today at at Envision. So I guess what was the, you know, having spent, I think it was near to 20 20 odd years, like in in companies before that, I guess what was the driver behind joining InVision and 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 what is the goal that you're trying to achieve there at the moment?
0: Well, so you know, CA got acquired by Broadcom, um, and, and it, it seems like you know you, you always look for moments that are good switching moments, right? And and being acquired by Broadcom seemed like a good switching moment. And and Broadcom is an, is an amazing company, and and they are they're a great team to work with. Um, but, but I wanted to go and work. You know, I worked in a big organization. I started out in a very small organization. I wanted to go back to something which was the sort of more grassroots. And, and it sort of, it provided that option. The, the CIO role was kind of interesting. Having spent so much time over the years rolling out infrastructure, software, security, and so on, um, the, the the role that sort of had come up there, and and I, and I knew um, their head, of their COO was looking for somebody. So, you know, we talked and I joined. And then, which then opportunities sort of provided itself to actually get into the operation side as well. You know, it's not necessarily something I say that people would sort of actively go and hire for, but what I will say about it is, is that because certainly in small companies, which are so heavily SaaS-based these days, a lot of the technologies are very geared towards your customer-facing teams. And, what's, and And being in both those split roles, it means that you're very, very present in the conversations in terms of what the... Build teams need to be successful. Um, and I think so from a CIO perspective, you know, I've got I've got a good team behind me on that side. Um, you know, we have a good security team, good data team. And each of each of those sort of component pieces all funnel into supporting sort of the go-to market and the product side. So there's there's a lot more synergies there than I think fully people that people fully appreciate. At the same time, my skill set probably lends it, it makes it slightly probably easier for me to go and do that than maybe some other people have worked purely in IT or purely sort of on the CIO side or purely in the operations and field side. Hmm.
1: And and when you first joined, um, what were you know? Could you give a bit of like perspective on what the revenue function really looked like at that point? And I guess I'd love to know a little bit more about some of the areas that you focused on when you first went in, um, and I guess some of the initial challenges that you saw
0: um Well, look the, 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 the revenue ops team was um, was pretty capable, almost probably more capable than it needed to be for the size of the organization it was. And, and I think that's one of the I think that's one of the challenges that sort of organizations have in terms of different size points. you know at CA, you know we were an international company, four billion dollars in revenue um, you know we, we had people in Latin America, America, Europe, and Asia. It, it, was, it was a relatively big team. But the complexity that we had was probably not that dissimilar to some of the things that we were trying to solve at Envision. And I think there's a, there's a nuance to all of this, which is you have to solve the problems in a simple enough way that you can impact the business, but not make it more complicated than it needs to be because you're chasing the nuance. The nuance, I think, is the... Um, Everybody believes that the nuance is going to give you the lift, and the reality is the nuance actually creates the drag. I may have answered that question in a roundabout way, but what, where we ended up with is that the we've the team has, I would say, simplified and shrunk and, and we've we're focusing on a core set of things that which which, you know, you, you try to reflect what the needs of the business are.
1: It's really interesting that you took the approach of actually simplifying because I know from, from my experience, you know, typically, you know, the actual maturity of the revenue operations function is either, you know, in its very much its infancy. And what's quite interesting here is that sounds like it was almost like uh, too complicated in a way. So what was what, the driver behind that?
0: Look, I think organizations that go through rapid growth inherently, which is what Envision had done, you, you tend to continue to chase sort of every bit of opportunity that sort of presents itself. And and sales teams, you know, you, you charge them to go and find revenue, and and they are inherently artists, and they will they will be um, creative, and that create that's the creativity then feeds down both in terms of finance systems they get put into um, production, and then in terms of the way Salesforce and Marketo gets configured, or CPQ gets configured, and the number of sort of number of SKUs that you then create, allow all these sort of deviations. The challenge with all of that is that each of these sort of levels of you can classify as sophistication in terms of the way that you can operate, create an onboarding challenge for every new person that you bring on board because the, um, as, as your organizations sort of churn, which inherently they do, especially sort of in the market that we've had for the last two or three years, you have to equip each of the new people to go and understand all the things that you've put in place to support the business. So, you know, it's this, it's this fine balance between providing and allowing flexibility to reflect what the business needs to be successful and grow, but not being so artistic that you create something that only a few people can effectively be successful in. And 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 look, it's a balance, right? And, And there is tension there and tension is not unhealthy. When when working with sort of um a collaborative team and look, look envisions the sort of primary is all around the collaboration so one of the things we are pretty good at is is sort of debating out collaborating and and sort of solving some of these problems but we, that's that's why we ended up sort of simplifying the environment
1: perfect and and you kind of touched on um one of the analogies that i really like that you use there is around you know sales being an art and actually um we've had uh, Mary Shea on last week, who was saying a similar thing of like, achieving that fine balance between that artistry, but also the, I guess the more logical side to it as well, which is, you know, sales becoming increasingly data driven. So with that in mind, how how would your approach be to actually like finding that that balance? I think with, I mean, we can talk about sales specifically, or feel free to kind of, uh, you know, cover the entire kind of go to market function. Um, how do you find that balance between Artistry, but also, you know, using data, using insights to actually empower what what your reps are doing.
0: So so let, let me answer it sort of this way. I, I think part of the challenge I think we have in the sort of the, the operations field is to understand what we are trying to achieve from an operations perspective, right? I mean, so if you just start with there is you're trying to measure the team's performance, the individual or a team, the, the business KPIs, there's a strategy component that you're trying to align to. And and all of this comes, and, I, and, so that, and the way I think about this is that this all starts with sort of what the strategic development of the organization is is approaching and looking at, right? There is a go-to-market sort of model they have in mind. They're trying to go and achieve certain things, go after certain customers, and, and that is driven by some key assumptions. I think of the ops effectively, rev ops, marketing ops. You know, you've got development operations, you know, you've got people operations, this it, sort of multiple operations, but effectively all come together. And you're a gearbox that sits inside the organization that spans the strategic aspects of what you're trying to achieve. There's your financial assumptions, whether it be your ASP, your win rate, the number of headcounts you will have in a country. I mean, you assume that you will have 10 headcount in a specific country. Now, marketing assumes that you've got 10 headcount in a country and they create X number of leads to support that number, right? But then what happens is is that somebody changes their mind, doesn't put 10 headcount, they put three. Marketing don't necessarily know, and they carry on at 10. And then sort of the the downstream impact is is felt across the organization because suddenly you're not getting the results that you're looking for. And it all comes back down to an assumption that was made is now sort of not being satisfied. So the gearbox sort of view to me is you sit in this point where you need to understand Strategically, what you're trying to do, the underlying assumptions in terms of what you are, um, how that strategy was put together, and then you go and work with, effectively, marketing are trying to go and do an aspect of it, whether it be expanding your existing footprint or creating new demand. Sales are trying to go and prospect into existing accounts, but which ones and how, what are you expecting from it? It all converges to a point where you have a set of opportunities and that's your demand generation function. Then you transition into your sort of prospect processing in terms of, okay, now you're taking to through the sales lifecycle. Then you land. The next question is, okay, so now you've landed. What is the process that you're then going to go and do? And, you know, we've, so we're all moving into this as sort a of layer model, specific, specifically with SaaS, where you're hoping that they're going to adopt the technology. You're hoping then because they're so excited by what you've sort of sold them, that they're going to expand and the salesperson is going to go back in and then you're going to renew. So when I think of sort of operations and you think about that life cycle, it's all about understanding from the very first moment, what is your strategy and what are you trying to achieve? What are the assumptions that you're making? And then how do you follow that whole process from end to end? And then when assumptions are not being met or or your headcount's not the same headcount as what your assumptions, those are the things that you have to start to highlight because in theory, you're missing your number or maybe you're achieving a number without the same number of heads, but that needs to be fed back into the strategy because it's a, it's a one big, engine. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm an engineering student. I look at everything as sort of a, a feedback system and that's effectively what has to happen. We have to provide that information back into the system so that we can then adjust the strategy. It's not perfect. It's, it's, it's constantly under review, but that's, that's kind of how I think about it.
1: I love the metaphor of a, of a gearbox. I think um, not only am I going to steal it, but I think it might well be the title of the episode. Um, but what, and and actually using that kind of metaphor, um, something that I, I kind of came across, you know, digging into, into your LinkedIn kind of in the run-up to this was, you know, a real uh, passion, I think, for, you know, collaboration across teams. And so you talked a lot about, you know, um, identifying where those problems are and actually, building a, a strategy behind it, but in and and perhaps you can lean on some examples. How do you actually go about not only identifying it, but then also starting to connect the dots in terms of you know how is this actually supporting the business? What impact is this ultimately having on our bottom line?
0: I would go one. I'd go one step back to to sort of your question, in terms of sort of what, where, how, to sort of these teams, our teams fit into sort of this and. And it comes down to a couple, of, a couple of parts. One is the partnership that you have with the business. And this comes back to why I think it's important that having um, experiences in other roles is so incredibly useful because your, your empathy for the challenge that they are going through um, when something's not working, because at least you can relate to what they're saying. So partnership with the individual and then the other thing is, you have to be interested. You have to find what it is, um, whether it's the marketing life cycle, whether it's the sales process, the, the technology that you're selling. You have to be interested in those pieces because it gives you the it gives you the curiosity to go and ask the the question of why, you know. And then, so if you sort of have those two pieces. When you understand what you're expecting, going back to sort of a strategy and a design assumption of how your business is going to work and things aren't working, because stuff doesn't work how you plan it, right? That's the only thing that is guaranteed is that what the plan is is not what you end up with. You start to look at and you start to question where a gap is appearing, and you ask the question why. Now, once you start asking it and you've got intelligent people that you're working with that sort of know their space and you have a good partnership they're willing to dig in with you and they will ask additional questions that you hadn't thought of and now you're learning from them, which then is helpful down the road. But you also hopefully solve the problem and you solve the problem by recognizing that something's not right in terms of both your assumption, your strategy, your execution, haven't got the right number of people, product may not be executing the way that you thought, the life cycle's not sort of clicking, your messaging is not clicking, could be a myriad of things. But unless you are willing to ask the why and keep asking the why and keep looking for the data and be iterative, it's very, very difficult to go and solve those things. And I think, I think to some degree, that's some of the challenge with sort of operations is that it, it can get netted down to an Excel sheet with a set of numbers on it with, you know, pluses and minuses. And to me, that's, that's not what it's about. That's, that may be a vehicle that you use or a tool that you'll use to drive the conversation, but really, these roles are about how do you aid, how do you help the person that's running sort of that aspect of the business to better understand the gap that may be appearing versus what you were expecting to actually be happening.
1: I, I love that. And uh, it's just a bit like um, almost like a, a feedback loop in a way, right, where you're um, obviously you have the data in front of you, but then also looking at it and going in terms of, OK, this is working here. This is not working here. And then um, we were kind of talking like beforehand around having that curiosity to go, you know, why is that number what it is? You know, why isn't it going up and why is it going down? So um, to, you know, to some of the audience that, you know, perhaps don't have that in place at the moment, you know, if you were to go to a new company now and it, and it didn't exist, how would you actually go about creating that kind of uh, like process and procedure?
0: Well, okay, it, all, it all starts with the data I mean, you know, it's funny because every organization I've been to and, and you know, and CA was, is, was, was the, um, where it started. And our old CMO, Lauren, used to be, uh, used to always say if the data doesn't originate from this location, it's not, it's not the real data. Um, getting to a, a single source of truth of what the numbers are as your starting point. Understanding what you're trying to achieve, what you assume things are going to go and be back to your strategy, your plan of some type. I mean, wherever you go, you've got to go and look at what, or what we were expecting to happen. What did we think? What was the financial plan? What were the number of headcounts we thought we'd have? So, understanding sort of that, understanding the data and the, where the data comes from, and then what data is the data that everybody looks at? What does finance look at? What does marketing look at? What does sales look at? Rationalizing that because it's surprising that each person has their own magic Excel sheet, which pulls data in a specific way, creates a whole new set of derived values to indicate different things. I, look, and I'm as guilty of doing this, by the way, as, as anybody else is. So, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not a purist on this, but you have to get to a common, a common understanding of what the data you're going to be using um, is versus what you thought it was going to go and be, and then you map out the, the end-to-end process. And, and the interim process is—I is, mean, it's—it's it's interesting because you know, and I, I'm going to say this as a, it, it dates me. In the old days, enterprise software selling was relatively straightforward, right? I mean, you go and take, knock on the door, you demo your software, they they'd potentially buy it. Then you, with the introduction of PLG, it shifts the whole thing to a whole. The digital experience that extends outside of the boundaries of your sort of sales team. Marketing starts sort of with that piece. There's a, a product aspect that has to work well. And then it transitions into effectively maybe through some sort of, you know, whether it be a, a limited trial, whether it be a sort of a scaling point that you hit an SSO limit where somebody has to go and start tying it into the backend systems, you reach a point where it becomes enterprise transaction. Each of those pieces needs to be understood so that you can then start to look at the data that you're actually getting, understand what you thought would be happening, and then you can start to produce a set of reports that reflect the flow of the business. And look, it's not about getting this 100% right. It's about identifying where the biggest gaps are and starting with those gaps and then getting to the smaller. I mean, it's always about turning the biggest dial, right? If you, It's not about um, fine tuning before you sorted out the you know the, the big the big dials to to turn.
1: Amazing. You, you touched on a couple of bits there that I, I really want to grab onto and kind of take us in, in a in a slightly different direction because you touched on um, like enterprise sales and also PLG there as well. I'm quite quite interested in your perspective on, on both, but let's let's start actually on enterprise sales and how was the buying process there changed in your opinion over the past couple of years you know obviously with the pandemic we've seen this big shift to uh, you know more digital transformation I'm quite curious about you know from from where you're kind of sitting what it's looked like and how it's and, and how it's shifted
0: okay I think um, I'm not sure that the shift has been that significant in the last couple of years I think if you if you broaden that to sort of the aperture to some degree, and you go and say, "We we've made a major shift from on-prem software to SaaS. That was the first big transition, and it changed the dynamic because the level of effort and pain that went into deploying an on-prem software. And coming from a services background, I mean that was the one of the key drivers, right? That's the way you'd make your money. It was difficult. It was difficult to once you'd installed it, take it out again. Um, and then SaaS came along and made it sort of easier and lighter, and you could go and get pilot projects running much more quickly. The the PLG piece, and to some degree, I mean that started out very early on, sort of with with SaaS solutions, because you could actually start using it. I mean, Salesforce did that to, to CA. I mean, we used it in one department, went and bought it sort of secretly, and then before you know, it, it's running as an enterprise solution across the whole company. But PLG has become much more of a of a normal way of starting to certainly trial software. You know, and if you're starting to look at as a CIO, you know, it's funny being a buyer and both a seller. I constantly sort of switch between those two lenses. So, as a buyer, if we're going to go and buy, look at something to buy. We will, if it's feasible, go and trial it. And if it's lightweight and easy to go and trial, absolutely, we'll start with that. And and that's that is that's the PLG piece. I think the, the 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 shift I think for for us in terms of the operations to the groups is how you think about each one of those um, those cycle times, and in terms of what you expect. What's what I mean? You have to ask the question is when someone does it goes through a PLG motion, are you expecting them to scale on their own? Are you expecting them to scale with support? What is the level of effort? What's the ramp time? At what point do you in, then go in and try to engage a salesperson to follow up on that process? Do you ever engage a salesperson? Is it all just natural bleed? And each one of those things is highly contingent upon the individual product and technology and the way that it, it engages and the way that it will then spread inside that organization. some tools are ideally some technologies are ideally suited for um, trialing and some some tools I mean New Relic is, is, a, is a tool that we used to compete against and, and it's a, a application performance monitoring tool. And what was clever about it versus sort of the solution that CA at the time had CA was a product you had to go and install it was sort of it, it was it was a heavy lift. New Relic they just worked with the developers. it bled into the development layer. And Before you know it, hit the production layer, and basically just became almost a sort of a default standard. And we're talking sort of a while ago now, but from a PLG motion, very very effective. Started free, it trained up all the developers because it was an easy tool to go and use. Uh, but nowhere near as sophisticated as the product that, that we had at the time, but much more effective in terms of winning over that sort of that that um, that onboarding group of people, which were the developers who wanted to test their products. So. You, when you start thinking, going back to sort of the, the revolves piece, each of these motions have a different level of, sort of time from a timing perspective, different expectation, right? So PLG, how long does it take to hit a point of critical mass? What does that look like? What does the data need to show you? And at what point do you then engage with an enterprise salesperson? And if you do, if somebody does a hand raise, the question then becomes... What do you go and do? Do you push them towards a the product, or do you go and engage them as an enterprise sales cycle and try to go and get them doing a landing deal? The big deals, the unicorn deals, I really think of sort of outside of big really big solutions have kind of gone away. This is land, adopt, expand, motion is much more the play. And once again, it then becomes you as a sort of an office person, you have to become very familiar with what are the, the things that you're expecting to see and each of those stages. That you can then provide to the business and say, okay, that they, they appear to be so fully engaged. They're reaching a point of capacity. It's a good opportunity to go and grow. So that that's kind of how I still look at it these days. It's it's, but it's evolving, right? I, I said on I I, I watch some of these um, the PLG to the chat boards, and it, and it's fascinating um, because I bring that sort of you know, I'm going to say it, legacy enterprise view with that sort of Fascinated curiosity in terms of what do we expect to go and see happen the, the key difference to me is the deal velocity is different. it's so much more predictable when you have a rep whos, who's who has a sort of good pro sales process taking you through versus a PLG where the client is still going on a journey of self-discovery very difficult to forecast that type of um, a type of uh, new deal.
1: Do, do you think that it will always remain like that? Obviously, buyer behaviour has changed like quite a lot. Um, but do you think that's going to be the case in like the next few years as well?
0: I think um, I think technology that we use in business and this is sort of looking through a buyer lens now has to provide value more quickly. I mean, we're we're using a um, a customer careful how I phrase it, targeting to the tools. So as, as customers do certain behavior, we want to make sure that we reinforce that, you know, great job. And can you go and, this is the next thing you should go and to help them continue to see value out of the solution. So that process of getting the right data, getting it integrated to the product, and then tying it into, you know, sort of our email system, the easier that is, the quicker that I see value, the more interested I am and putting weight behind it. So, to your question, I think that the more that product companies, you know, and, and envision being one of them, get um, better at sort of understanding what is your point of initial, your speed to initial value. Um, and it was in an article I read the other day. I think is going to become more and more critical. And the question then becomes: Is how do you get the enterprise functionality that big enterprises, JP Morgan Chase, for example, right? What they want, just using a random sort of organization, nothing, nothing sort of specific, but what they want in terms of sort of enterprise security, enterprise administration, sort of all those types of things is different. So their speed to value, it may be the way they judge you. Their expectation in terms of whether or not they will buy you is different because they want all those other sort of enterprise classic enterprise features as well. And I think that's going to be one of the challenges that sort of software companies have as they start to go from sort of the low, small, medium-sized business sort of, um, type of organization who are more tolerant and, and more, you know, risk comfortable effectively, or don't even worry about the risk, just don't think about it, to, and you go to an organization, which is like a bank, um, they have to be very, very in tune with, because there, there is so much more um, at risk and, ex- and exposure there or could be exposed. So I think that's going to be the challenge um, as these technologies evolve. I know that as a, as a, as a software vendor, um, you know, it's one of the things that we constantly look at is the balance between speed to value. What can you go and provide customers? How do you make it easy? And then secondly, on the back of that, from a security perspective, how do you make sure that you bring the right features that support those types of organization?
1: something I'm quite we've talked fairly like holistically around like um you know the role of product like growth and I'm I'm quite interested to to perhaps dig a little more into um obviously envision um you can also get a free trial of the tool of that as well so how, how do you integrate that into your sales process so you've talked a lot about I think more holistically how businesses do it but how how are you guys doing it
0: it's a under constant review and debate and I say that because um, I think organizations like us are always trying to tune and best align our experience to what our customers are looking for. And it's it's a balance between making sure that you react to the needs of the customer without being overly pushy. And, and that, I think, is the, is the um, inherent challenge in terms of working with a PLG and enterprise sales motion,
1: do you think we'll, we'll ever get to a point where um, it will become more like sales-assisted product-led growth, or do you think there's always going to be that that key role for, for the sales team?
0: Um, you know, it's funny that I was I was chatting with somebody on a, a channel the day specific about this. Look, it's, I think that the the motion itself of um plg because the other thing you've got to think about is that there's two aspects of plg one is this is the first part of value evaluating of what the solution is and whether or not this is a fit for the problem i'm trying to solve right so that's step one the second is is you know you could almost call it enterprise plg which is you've now got it landed inside the organization but how do you get it to bleed across the business and, and, and bleed across the business is about sort of providing sort of um, positive impact outside of the original organization that you've engaged with. You know, you've got one small department. Realistically, you want to engage with multiple or, or parts of the business. So you have to create um, you have to create a, a way of sort of getting that spread outside of that sort of initial uh, I- initial motion. Now, an enterprise software so to sale, what would sort of go and happen is you'd hit a paywall and then your rep would go in and start to sort of provide. And, and, and Slack did a phenomenal job doing this, right? I mean, it's, that, as a, a PLG motion, they gave—they gave. They gave um, I probably shouldn't reference the, the contract structure that they gave us, but let's just say that uh, it wasn't difficult to add more people to Slack, mm, and yep. and at the renewal time, they re- made it very clear that we'd added more people to Slack. <laughs> this is, and this is pre Salesforce, but the. It's a good motion, right? Because it's efficient. It provides value to us as the solution to the it expands inside the business. I mean, it, it hits all the value points that you're looking for. And from from their perspective, it's efficient because they come back to you at the renewal times. So they're not trying to hit you up at each moment that you're one or two or three people over. I think I think the assisted piece certainly is is where people are gravitating to. I think it. it I think what you what we have to think about is that there is um, there's products which are sort of a, they have a single product, and then there are products which have sort of bolt-ons that go on. and I think that there is. and I was talking to a, a company yesterday. I won't say who it was, and they were taking us through sort of their solution. But you know, I mentioned something, and immediately because you know we now sort of hit from a from a usage perspective, we sort of hit this sort of semi annual um, review. They've got three of the things that would solve these problems, which compete with other solutions that I have. So, you know, to me, that's the switch from, okay, we may have got it through a PLG motion, we may have extended into a landing point, and now we're being sold to as enterprise customer because they recognize that they can go and help me consolidate my footprint. Because I'm, you know, as a, back into the bio view, we have 240 SaaS apps inside our company, and we're, we're not a big company. and. So for all the benefits of SaaS, it, it becomes complicated because these are all solutions that need to go through security reviews. They need to go through integration strategies. You've got data in different places, all of this stuff, you know, procurement, it, it, it does inherently become complicated. So if an organization helped me rationalize and I can continue to drive that number down, then I'm interested, even if the functionality is not as good as somebody else I already have. So, I mean, it, so, but that's, that's been going on for, since software started. It's what makes it so interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And as we kind of move to, you know, kind of wrapping up, there's one more question that, I, that I'm quite interested to know the answer to. And uh, it's been really interesting talking about, like, the, the, obviously the rise of product uh, product growth. And so if you, if you had to make a prediction in the next 12 months, what, what do you think the, the biggest shift in, in PLG is likely to be?
0: That's a tough question to answer. I mean, we, we, you, we're look, we've looked at tools that introduce AI to the decision process. It's difficult to see the, the lift consistently that you would expect from using tools like that because there's so much noise inside the system. Does the introduction, as AI becomes more and more robust, the data gets cleaner, does, it, does the tools um, that you're buying React better? I mean, some of the stuff that we're playing with at the moment, and, and this, is, this is much ex- experimental as it is sort of scientific at this point. Does that mean that it becomes more efficient at becoming viral because it drives the right behavior? PLG is all about viral spread and it's about getting value and usage. So the more that you can drive that, the greater the success a product will have inside the business. It all comes down to then the way that you use the data to understand what it is that your features that you're adding, what is resonating, and whether or not that is having the impact that you're looking for. So the combination, I think, of of the data that you're getting from your products, the data you're getting from your users, which by the way is becoming big customers are now are starting to become more twitchy about providing some of that data to you. So that actually makes it more tricky. Um, and then using sort of some of these modern tool sets, which are leveraging sort of, sort of aspects of AI to go and drive maybe different recommendations in terms of what you should go and push to your, to your user, your customer, to go and get them to continue to use your product in a specific way. I think that influences their behavior. That behavior drives spread, and the spread is what ultimately sort of bleeds into, obviously, growth um, across the organization. I think customer onboarding, the introduction of, of scale, customer success in terms of how that helps and drives the pendo being embedded. You know, nice to use pendo because we use pendo, but using sort of pendo like tools that, that provide that constant prompting, but then not overwhelming. All of that stuff is the art that's taking place right now. So I, I think all of that coming together is what's going to sort of drive. And from the, from the operation side is, is um, you know, that's sort of where this sort of whole thing started. Being able to provide the understanding of what's working and what isn't, and then how that's going to impact the churn of your customers, the growth of your customers, and how that ties back to revenue, and then where your sales reps, which are inherently sort of become expensive from a, just a, a pure prospecting perspective so you can target them to specific organizations where you can help them, you can help those organizations go on that journey by both supplying content in terms of how to use it, maybe enablement, but then obviously try to get to a contract because that's what software companies wanna go and do is sell software. I think that is sort of the, is, is where we're all striving to get to, but it's a journey and it's a fun journey.
1: Nick, that was a beautiful way of maneuvering. What I appreciate it was a very tough question, so, so thank you. Um, right. Let's let's move to wrap up there, Nick. Only last thing um, to to anyone listening that wants to connect, uh, you know, learn a little bit more about what you're working on. Um, where can they find you?
0: LinkedIn, and then and then in I'm I'm based out of New York, British accent, but based out of uh, just outside of New York, as which is how our conversation started, Lee. When you said you were surprised to be speaking to a Brit <laughs> when you thought I was going to be American.
1: Yeah, uh, and it's great to have another Brit on the show. Um, Nick, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for for joining us and and to everyone listening, thank you for listening. Um, We'll catch you next week. Thank you again. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.